name's Tim, um, and uh, my wife and I were here this morning with our, our young ones. And uh, uh, one of our young ones, the, the youngest, Callum, um, has, uh, has recently taken to drawing upon the walls. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously he, he does this in a manner that, uh, that, that can't really be denied. The evidence is, is there on the walls. Indeed, the last time he was caught, he'd managed to get hold of a, um, some kind of felt tip, uh, allegedly a water-based one that could be wiped off easily, but we've had to paint over some of the bits. Um, but he was there with his face covered, with his hands covered, with bits at Callum Height going all the way up the stairs, in the hallway, um, on different walls. He'd even drawn in the middle of, of something that was leaning up against it, so you could see the mark of where that had been leaning up. He was caught in the act. The evidence was obvious, believable, and couldn't be denied. And that's what we're going to see in the passage before us today as well. So let's pray as we come to this passage. Lord, may the words that I speak and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable to you. O Lord, our God and our Redeemer, speak through me and by me, that the words that come from uh, me may be from you and of you. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we're looking at chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Um, but I want to take us back a bit, and that's why we had the second reading, or the first reading, um, from chapter 3. Because um, it starts rather dramatically in chapter 4 with, and as they were speaking, which kind of, we need the context of what they were speaking about. What's happened that they're being arrested by the priests and by the, uh, by the chief of the, the temple guards. So in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Peter and John heal a man who has been lame from birth, we're told that in verse 1. And they do it in the name of Jesus Christ. We find out later in our passage, right at the end of, uh, of, of, uh, of our passage in, in chapter 4, verse 20, uh, 22, uh, that he's over 40 years old. So he's had to beg his entire life. Daily he was carried to the temple, to the temple gate called Beautiful, in order to ask for alms from those going to pray. And doubtless many passed him by quickly so as not to be disturbed by him or felt self-righteous as they put a small amount in his hands. Peter and John have him look at them, and then they command him to walk in Jesus' name. Peter grabs his right hand and pulls him up, and immediately his feet and ankles that haven't been used for 40 years, feet and ankles that have probably atrophied through lack of use, suddenly become strong, and he's able to leap up. This is no person who's been faking it, this is a miracle that can't be denied. And the man immediately leaps to his feet, praising God for his healing, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 8. Verses 9 to 10, the people recognize him as having been sitting begging outside the temple for many years. And they're filled with wonder and amazement. Is this the same man? It is. How is he standing? They, they run to Peter and John, who are standing outside the temple. And whilst he clung to Peter and John, whilst he's, he holds on to them, you know, these guys who've just literally raised him up from not being able to walk, have changed his life completely in the name of Jesus. All the people, utterly astounded, ran to Peter and John. And Peter addresses the crowd in verses 12 to 16, and says, why do you wonder at this? Really? You don't think this is remarkable? 
It would be remarkable if it happened in Preston today. Mind you, just getting them to get up and go to the pie shop with you is uh, difficult enough sometimes. Peter addresses a crowd and gives them a very direct account of how they and the temple authorities are responsible for Jesus' death before saying that Jesus is the holy and righteous one, the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we, he and John, are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of all of them. That's verses 14 to 16. And Peter then reminds him in verses 17 to 26 of the prophets. He refers them back to their past, back to their scriptures, back to what they know telling them to repent and turn from their wickedness and be blessed and refreshed through Jesus Christ instead of being destined for destruction. If you notice, the the call to them to to, to repentance comes in verse 19 of chapter 3. So when they get interrupted by the guards um, at the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, they've already passed the message on. They've already called people to Jesus. He reminds them that that Jesus needs them to turn to him, to repent of their sins, or they are destined for destruction. Can you imagine the spectacle? Here he is, standing outside the temple with a lame man dancing a jig next to him and telling the people that not just they, but the temple authorities are destined for destruction. That in their ignorance, and, and that's being kind when he says it's their ignorance, They've deliberately done this. It's a, it's a little bit stronger than ignorance, really. They have killed the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. Moreover, it's only through this Jesus, whose name alone has been powerful enough to cause a man lame from birth to be made whole, that they can be saved. Only through this Jesus. Imagine the outrage of the temple authorities. Not only has killing Jesus not got rid of him, but his disciples are claiming he is raised from the dead, is God, and that they're to blame. The Sadducees didn't even believe in resurrection for uh, uh, Acts 23, verse 8. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and there is neither angels nor spirits. Not only are these men preaching about resurrection, they're preaching about resurrection in today's society, of a man they killed of a man the Sadducees have had a role in in killing. He's been raised back to life. What happens next is therefore unsurprising. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Even as they're saying all this to the people, they're arrested by the temple rulers, priests and temple guards, who are greatly annoyed because they're teaching of the resurrection of of the dead in Jesus. As it's already evening, they're put in custody for the night. Okay? They've, They've silenced them for the moment. They're in custody, and the persecution of the church has begun. Chapter 4, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. That's in the NIV, or in the ESV. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. It doesn't really matter whether the believers increased to 5,000 men in total, or 5,000 men believed that day. The numbers are enormous either way. Jesus was raised from the dead only a few months before. And the crowd can see the lame man, the man they have known as a beggar for years, walking 
and leaping and praising God. Chapter 3, verse 8. He's all but dancing the river dance for them. And they hear a very direct sermon from Peter, a sermon full of challenge and grace. And the evidence of the power of Jesus' name is right before them. This is evidence that convinces an enormous amount of people going about their ordinary day-to-day endeavors. Evidence that can be believed. Evidence you can believe. Evidence you can rely upon. Evidence that, as Luke introduces in chapter 1, verse 4, that you may have a certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke, of course, the writer of Acts, that's his introduction to his gospel. And the follow-up in the Acts of the Apostles has been set out as an orderly account, verse 3 of chapter 1, of all that Jesus began to do um, and teach until the day he was taken up, after he was presented himself alive by many proofs during 40 days. That's Acts 1, verses 1 to 3. And he goes on to tell of how the apostles have received power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and will be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, chapter 1, verse 8. Now, therefore, this is evidence that can be believed. And these men believe, even as Peter and John are looked up, and the persecution of the church begins. Chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, the next day, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, and all the high priestly family, uh, notice who's there. You've got Ananias, the high priest, disposed by the Romans, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, whom the Romans appointed in his place, an awkward situation of two high priests. He retains his title. The other guy gets the chair. And although Luke doesn't explicitly state this, it's clear that Peter and John find themselves before the 71-member Sanhedrin, who arrange themselves in a sort of open circle, a sort of semicircle with edges, um, with Peter and John in their midst, verse 7. And they literally ask Peter and John how they've healed the lame man. By what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 7. Kind of asking for it, really, aren't they? Peter doesn't disappoint. Peter, verses 8 to 12. Peter filled the Holy Spirit, cuts straight to the chase. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Verse 10. Before directing Psalm 118, 20, verse 22 at them, Jesus says, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And then continues on that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. In this rather pointed application, Peter identifies his audience as being the builders in Psalm 118 who have rejected the stone they should have seen as being the most important in the building. The part of the building around which the rest of the building is built. The part of the bridge that holds the rest up. Remove that stone and the whole edifice comes tumbling down. Of course, as we see later on, that's exactly what they're afraid of. That's what they were afraid of with Jesus. That the edifice that they are, that they are presenting to people, their power, their influence, becomes as, as of naught when put against the power of Jesus' name. Psalm 118, I don't know if you want to turn back, it's on page 616 in the, uh, in the Pew Bibles. <coughs> 
Um, Psalm 118 talks about how we should give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. It's a, it's a heartbeat rhythm through that psalm. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. But what it also goes on to say is um, in verse 6, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? It's this psalm that Peter quotes to them. Not only does it apply in terms of Jesus being the stone the builders reject, but what can mere mortals do to me when the Lord is on my side? And so, in verse 13, we find later that they are amazed at the boldness. Chapter 4, verse 10, the evidence is right before their eyes. The lame man is literally standing before them, in front of them. It's kind of hard to deny. Verse 11, he's, so verse 10, he's literally standing there. This is evidence that can be believed, that has been believed by thousands. Indeed, it is evidence that can't be denied, as we'll see shortly. 5,000 men and many more women and children have been persuaded by what they see. Evidence that can be believed. Evidence you can believe. Evidence we can believe. The rulers had thought to put Peter and John on trial and instead have found themselves being put on trial. The man who denied Christ to a slave girl during, during Jesus' trial has been so changed by the power of Jesus that he stands first in front of the imposing temple building and delivers a sermon calling them murderers who need to turn from their wickedness and seek forgiveness from the one they murdered, and then stands in front of this intimidating body, the highest Judaic court that had previously handed Jesus over for crucifixion, and accuses them to their faces directly telling them that it is by Jesus' name, whom God raised from the dead, that the man standing in front of them has been healed, and that there is no salvation except through Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 13. And they marvel at the boldness of Peter and John, and perceive that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Of course, this isn't the first time that the authorities have perceived an uneducated common man speaking with unusual authority. Um, if you want to turn to page 1072, um, you'll, be, you'll find yourself in John chapter 7. <clears throat> in John chapter 7, Jesus is speaking um, in the temple. Uh, he's previously been uh, sought by the Jews to be killed. They're seeking his death, and so he goes into the temple gates and speaks openly to the people. And uh, the Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Verse 15. And some of the Jews realize that Jesus is the same man. And in verses 25 to 26, they say, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities know that this is the Christ? And then at the end of chapter 7, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to, him, to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Even the officers sent by the chief priests and the temple guards to arrest Jesus come back going, well, we couldn't arrest him. No one ever spoke like him. 
these common fishermen, standing before the highest council, speak with the same boldness and eloquence of Jesus, despite never having studied or completed formal education. The only conclusion that they can draw is that the men have picked up on what they have and what they know from Jesus. That's why in verse 13, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And they're astonished at the knowledge of these common, uneducated men. And the eloquence and the power that has come upon them can only be from one place. But it's not really evidence that they want. Chapter 4, verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They have nothing to say. They don't challenge Peter's assertion of the resurrection. And nor can they say that the man wasn't lame or hadn't been healed. The evidence that can't be denied is standing there right in front of them. Chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. With the evidence in front of them, they have three options. To believe it, to ignore it, or to deny it. Yet they recognize that they can't deny it, as too many people have seen this incredible miracle. Too many people are aware of it. It's too notable. The man they're used to seeing day in, day out, unable to walk or stand, for as long as any of them can remember, is standing in front of them. And everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. Evidence that can't be denied. Chapter 4, verses 17 to 18. So they take a different course. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. They refuse to take the step that the evidence demands and believe. They can't take the step that they want and deny the evidence. And they can't risk ignoring the evidence as it is causing people to believe in and place their trust in Jesus, disrupting their power and religion. So they choose to do what they can to suppress the evidence. Peter and John are charged not to speak or teach in Jesus' name, verse 18. They are given an official warning and they'll speak no more of the matter as long as Peter and John don't either. Chapter 4, verses 19 to 20. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Well, that went well. The Sanhedrin have always claimed that God is their ultimate authority when dealing with the Romans. You know, that he is the ultimate court, not the Romans. That's where their authority comes from. And now Peter and John have turned that around on them. How can they keep their mouths shut when they have the evidence that can be believed, the evidence that can't be denied, that the Sanhedrin themselves haven't been able to deny? This is also the evidence that can't be suppressed. Judge for yourselves, Peter and John say. Should we listen to you or to God? Chapter 4, verses 21 to 22. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. 
for the man to whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So we've heard in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, of how he was lame from birth, and here we hear that he's over 40 years old. 40 years of being lame, changed by the power of Jesus' name. 40 years, and what does he do? He stands, he praises God, he leaps, he dances. And they can't deny that evidence. And the evidence is too important. It is evidence that can be believed, evidence that can't be denied, and evidence that can't be suppressed. And Peter and John, well, they've already quoted Psalm 118 at them. What can they as mere mortals do to them when the Lord is with them? Judge for yourselves. Is it right that we listen to you or to God? And so, as the persecution of the church begins with an official warning... They go out saying, uh, yeah, no, we're, we're going to keep going to do it. We can't but speak of Jesus' name. We can't but speak of Jesus. The whole of Jerusalem was aware of it. And the more attention the authorities drew to it, the more the people drew their own conclusions. There's a, a great book by, um, uh, that Josh Dow, uh, McDowell wrote titled um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And there's a new version out uh, that goes through all the evidence as to why you can trust the Bible and trust in Jesus. Uh, so it's a, it's a combination of the two books he wrote earlier, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict and More Evidence That Demands a Verdict, updated in about 1990 as the new Evidence That Demands a Verdict and now come out in a new version, and this includes stuff from his son as well. And it's a, it's a wonderful book. It, it isn't so much authored by him as edited by him as he pulls in huge numbers of of accounts from different people, uh, people who've walked in the Holy Land, um, people who are surgeons and doctors, and, and, and every aspect is examined and the evidence is presented. And if you have any concerns at all about the accuracy or the testimony of the Bible, that book is a superb reference because it takes you through why you can, be, you can believe it. But you don't need that because the Bible is sufficient. And it's evidence. This evidence in front of us demands a verdict too. It's evidence that needs to make a difference in our lives as well. Peter is changed by the power of Jesus. The man who couldn't acknowledge Jesus in front of the slave girl, standing in front of the highest council of, Judah, uh, and, uh, of Judaism and defying them. It's changed the lame man as well changed by the power of Jesus' name. And the Sanhedrin, left speechless and unable to deny the evidence in front of them. So how will it change you? Will the knowledge that Jesus wasn't just a historical figure, a good man who lived a good while ago and was put to death by the Romans in a horrible way, how will that affect how you live? That Jesus died for your sins, and then when he was raised again to life, he took your punishment. How does it change your life to know that Jesus' name has power? And that if we believe and trust in Jesus, his Holy Spirit will fill us as it did Peter. How does it change our outlook to know that salvation is found in no one else? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
all roads do not lead to heaven. There is one road, one way, and it is a narrow and difficult path to follow. But we have the truth in front of us. We have the evidence that can be believed, the evidence that can't be denied, the evidence that can't be suppressed. No matter how many times people tried to suppress the Bible or tried to suppress Christianity, it spread. Indeed, it spread more through persecution than it did when it wasn't persecuted. We heard this morning about how persecution sharpened the church. What's important becomes clearer. Is it important about how we dress? Or about even which version of the Bible we use? Or which songs we use? Or which building we meet in? No. What's important is whether or not we spread the good news of Jesus Christ to those who haven't experienced it. That we bring people who don't know Jesus to him. Whom will you tell? Whom will you tell? For if Jesus is the salvation that is foretold by God, and that every soul who does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people, chapter 3, verse 23, will you deny or suppress the evidence of who Jesus was? Will you ignore it? Or will you allow his Holy Spirit to change you, that people may see Christ in you, and that you will have the boldness to proclaim Jesus and to act in his name, even in the face of persecution, to bring people to Christ. You might have thought that after this, Peter and John would pray not to have been persecuted any further. They've just been threatened after all. And it isn't an empty threat. You know, Jesus has literally been crucified a couple of months, three months before. Yet in the verses following, in, uh, in chapter 4, verses 23 to, to 31... And particularly in verse 29, they pray not for an end to persecution, but for boldness. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Can we be as bold? When was the last time you spoke to a work colleague? You know, somebody who isn't trying to kill you. Or a neighbor. Or somebody in the park, or on the train, or on the bus, or just in the street. When was the last time you shared the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the exclusion of all others? That salvation is found only in Jesus Christ? How will you let it change you? How will we let it change us? Can we be as bold? Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, you gave boldness and to the believers in, in, in the time after your death. You filled Peter and John with the Holy Spirit and caused them to do those wonderful works that they weren't afraid to own. That, that they did in your name and which caused such a disturbance. And then, Lord, they claimed it for you, that it was in your name, by your power. 
Help us, Lord, to be bold. To be bold to speak to people. To be bold to speak even when we're being told to shut up. That we might cause others to become believers. And that the evidence that can be believed is presented to them. That they cannot deny that evidence. And that we will not allow them to suppress that evidence. Give us bold hearts, Lord, bold spirit, that we may be sent out to speak on your behalf as the apostles and disciples were. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.